Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 3. And if you didn't uh, bring your Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to look at the pew in front of you. You should find a Bible there, and uh, you'll find our passage on page 952. 952. First Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, we're going to begin a series this morning in the book of First Corinthians and work through uh, Corinthians verse by verse, section by section, and uh, have been looking forward to doing this for some time. And so I'll read the passage and we'll pray and then we'll consider what God has to say to us from His Word. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you especially for this letter to the Corinthian church. And Father, as we begin this study this morning and embark on studying this letter for months to come, we pray, Father, that You would especially bless this time in Your Word. We pray, Father, that the wonderful truths that are contained in 1 Corinthians would come alive in our own minds and hearts. And Father, we pray that as a result of studying this letter, our church would never be the same. Our lives would never be the same. We pray, Father, that we would be transformed and changed more and more into the image of Christ. And Father, that we would become the church that You would have us to be. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, about a year ago, we began to discuss, at that time, Berea Baptist Church and Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, the possibility of a merger. And now this Sunday morning, here we are worshiping together as one church, and the Lord has been good to us. The Lord's shown His kindness and goodness to us in that, and we praise Him for it. And as Emerged Church now, as we're seeking the Lord, as we're praying and working to become the church that the Lord would have us to be, 1 Corinthians is an excellent letter for us to turn to and to study. Because 1 Corinthians has much to do about the church and who the church is to be, what God has called the church to be. Paul founded the church in Corinth. The story is actually recorded in Acts chapter 18. If you would like to know more of the background, you can read that story later on your own. But Corinth was a leading city in the Roman Empire. It was known for its cultural diversity and also it was known for its moral debauchery. And as this young church was established in Corinth by the Apostle Paul, they really struggled to live out their newfound faith in Christ. It was increasingly difficult for this church to really distinguish themselves, to set themselves apart from the pagan culture in which they found themselves. And instead of this church really being set apart and distinct from the culture and a representative of Christ in the Christian faith, they were more of a mirror and representation of the culture in which they found themselves. And so Paul writes them to encourage them, to admonish them, and to correct them so that they might become the people that God intended them to be. 
This morning, we'll focus just on these first few verses, Paul's greeting to the church. And it was very common, actually, when folks wrote letters in the first century A.D. in the Greco-Roman world, it was common for them to begin with a greeting, something like this greeting here. The greeting would have contained the author's name, the recipients or those who are being addressed, and then some type of greeting. And so that was very common. But what we see here in these few verses is that Paul takes that greeting and he infuses his own personal influence into it. He infuses really the gospel into it and makes it something unique and distinct and different. Paul puts his own unique, distinctly Christian twist on it. And it really sets the tone for the rest of the letter. And what we see here in this greeting is that Paul makes it clear that the gospel defines who he is, the gospel defines who the church is that he's writing to, and the gospel is the message that the church so desperately needs to hear. With that in mind, I want us to consider the greeting in three parts. Very simply, we'll follow the structure of the verses here. We'll consider the author of the letter. Secondly, we'll consider the recipients of the letter. And then third, we'll consider the greeting. So first of all, let's look at the author of the letter. This is found in chapter 1, verse 1. We read these words, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul begins here in this letter by identifying himself as an apostle. In fact, in this letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, that word apostle in reference to the apostle Paul is used ten times. It's the most in any letter that Paul writes, it's the most that he ever refers to himself as an apostle. And the reason why Paul repeatedly in this letter refers to himself as an apostle is because in 1 Corinthians there were some who were there who were claiming to be apostles and calling into question Paul's apostleship. And it was causing confusion in the church. You can imagine they were founded by the Apostle Paul. He had played a significant role, really the main one who was responsible for the founding of this church. He's been gone for a time, and they've been significantly influenced by Paul the Apostle, but now there are other individuals who are coming along, and they're claiming to be apostles, and they're teaching things contrary to the Apostle Paul, and so there's confusion in the church. Who should we listen to? And this is still true today, isn't it? Especially as we think about the 24-hour news cycle and as we think about the phenomenon of social media, it seems like everyone has an opinion, right? And everyone's bent on sharing their opinion and telling us what the right course is and what the right way to think is and what the right thing to do is. And with all these competing opinions, it can be very confusing. Who are we at the end of the day to listen to? And so Paul here begins the letter by establishing his authority, establishing his authority as an apostle. This is why, church, you should listen to me, the apostle Paul is saying. Similar today, if you were think about an electrician, an electrician has to have a certification or a license in order to work. Or you think about a hairdresser, a hairdresser has to have a license in order to cut hair, or a doctor has to have a license in order to practice medicine. It's, It's establishing credentials, it's establishing credibility. And the Apostle Paul here, as he's writing to the church in Corinth, begins by establishing his credibility. He says, I'm an apostle, I am one who is specifically sent out and commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to proclaim and preserve the message of Jesus. And therefore, my writing to you has authority 
It has bearing upon your life and upon your church. Notice he says that he is an apostle by, you see it there in verse 1, by the will of God. In other words, the Apostle Paul did not apply for the position. Now, the Apostle Paul wasn't going through all the different professions that he could have been and saw on the top 20 promising jobs for the future apostle, and so he decided to apply for it. No, the Apostle Paul didn't choose this for himself. In fact, he wasn't chosen to be an apostle by others either. It wasn't like a group of people got together and said, yeah, we think Paul, he's a pretty good guy. Why don't we vote on him to be an apostle? No. The Apostle Paul says, I was made an apostle by the will of God. God chose him. And this is a reference back surely to the Damascus Road experience where the Apostle Paul, who was one of the chief opponents and enemies of the early church, was on, his road, on the road to Damascus. And his intention was to persecute the church, to imprison members of the church in Damascus. And the Lord came to him, miraculously appeared to him, and arrested his heart, and captured his life, and radically transformed him. And Paul who was one of the significant, most significant opponents of the early church, became its greater, greatest ambassador and missionary. As he would then go on to preach the gospel and share the gospel to nations all over the Roman Empire at great personal cost to himself. The Apostle Paul says, I didn't choose this. No one chose this for me. But I was made an apostle by the will of God himself. And this led actually to a strange juxtaposition in in Paul's life, a strange, it would seem almost like a dichotomy, but it actually fits together perfectly and and, and comes together in Paul's life, This, this sense of humility and confidence that we find in the Apostle Paul. Now, there was a sense of deep humility, genuine humility in Paul's life. As Paul would say, I didn't choose this for myself, I didn't earn this, I didn't do anything to receive this. This is completely the grace and mercy of God in my life. I was opposed to Jesus, and he arrested me and changed me by his grace. There was a deep humility. But there was also a firm confidence as well. As the Apostle Paul could say, yes, God did choose me, and he divinely commissioned me to fulfill this responsibility and task, and I cannot turn away from it. And I cannot approach it sheepishly. But I must follow through with all my zeal and all my might and all my vigor to fulfill what God has purposed for my life. You know, my friends, only the gospel can give you that type of genuine humility and deep, firm confidence in your life. It's important here as the Apostle Paul opens this letter that he's writing to the Corinthians that he establishes his authority because as he deals with any type of any number of sensitive and difficult issues within the church, the Apostle Paul wants to know that he's not just, he wants the church in Corinth to know that he's not just kind of tweeting his opinions. He's not just kind of blogging about his own personal ideas, but he is speaking to them with apostolic authority, with the authority of Jesus Christ Himself. He is a representative of Jesus speaking into their lives. As the Apostle Paul had a message for the church in Corinth that was authoritative and binding upon their lives, as we get into this series and as we're going to be walking through this letter in the months to come, we need to recognize right up from the front as we start to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, as we start to walk through these verses and walk through these chapters, that this message comes to us with authority. 
This message comes to us with power. This is not just some man writing his opinions. But this is a man who has been commissioned by the glorious and resurrected and risen and reigning Christ. And he speaks on his behalf with authority. And it's binding upon our lives. And this message demands our trust and demands our obedience. I'll just say briefly that in verse 1, it Paul also mentions the brother Sosthenes, and many of you are probably wondering who that is, and I am too. Nobody really knows. <laughs> so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. People have different opinions and options. He could have been a personal secretary to the Apostle Paul, but we don't know. We can just say he was a co-laborer with Christ. This leads us to our second point, and that is the recipients of the letter. So the first is the author, and that's the Apostle Paul. The second is the recipients of the letter. We find this in verse 2. The Apostle Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now Corinth, as I mentioned before, was a significant city in the Roman Empire, but Paul here, as he begins and opens his letter, he doesn't begin by gloating over all the glories of the city of Corinth. Paul doesn't open up his letter by glorying about the architecture in Corinth, which he could have, or the economic prosperity or the notoriety in the Roman Empire of this great city, but rather he glories in this small band of believers, small band of struggling believers in this grand and great and significant city. And Paul's mind, as one commentator has stated, quote, the important thing about Corinth is the recipients of this letter, end of quote. And you notice right out of the gate how the Apostle Paul addresses them, how he identifies them. them. He says, you are the church of God in Corinth. In a church, that word ecclesia in the original language is simply translated gathering or assembly. In this context, it would be translated church as it is here. And so the church of God is that gathering, that assembly of believers who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. And you know this word church, ecclesia, is used a couple of different ways in the New Testament. Actually, in our new members class blueprint, we cover this. This is one of the things that we talk about. And for those of you who have not been to our new members class, I would encourage you to do so. We're going to be having sign-ups for that in the weeks to come. That's a great opportunity for you to learn more about our church here at Crawford Avenue. But in our class, we cover this concept that this word ecclesia is used a couple of different ways in the New Testament. One way that it's used is to refer to the universal church. And this refers to all Christians everywhere at all times. So Christians who would have lived before us, Christians in the present, Christians who will come in the future, Christians in heaven, Christians on earth. That's the universal church. All Christians everywhere at all times. But this word ecclesia is also used in the New Testament to refer to the local church. And this would be a group of particular Christians who are gathered together like our church here at Crawford Avenue. And you know, as we think about the use of this word church in the New Testament ecclesia, our natural inclination might be to think that, well, if this word is used in the New Testament, it's probably used most often to refer to the universal church, that is to all Christians, because isn't the Bible really written to all Christians? And yes, it's true that the Bible is written to all Christians, 
But you might be surprised to find out that when this word is used in the New Testament, it's used 114 times. That's a lot. But it almost always, when it is used, refers to the local church, not to the universal church. In fact, it's only a couple times that the word is used to refer to the universal church, to all Christians everywhere at all times, but it's used overwhelmingly over and over and over again to refer to particular groups of Christians who are gathered together in one place, who are seeking to do life together and live out their faith in Christ together. Now, why is that important? Because in this we see God's love, not just for His church in general, but for individual specific congregations. We see God's love for the local church. You know, it's significant that Paul wrote to the church in Rome and the church in Galatia and the church in Ephesus and the church in Corinth and the church in Philippi and the church in Colossae. And you can go on and on. The church in Thessalonica. Because God had a concern and a love and an interest in every one of these little congregations, their joys, their burdens, their hardships, their struggles, their issues. And God in the New Testament addresses each of these individual congregations. You know, this is one of the reasons why it's so important for each one of us to be a member of a local church. Because as we see in the New Testament, God loves the church. God doesn't just have a general love for all Christians everywhere. God loves particular congregations that are messy and have their own distinct and unique personalities and their own struggles and their own challenges. He cares about each one of those churches. And it's in the context of that messiness of life that the Christian faith is really lived out and experienced. See, this church is not man's invention. It's not like Christians a few hundred years after Jesus arose and ascended. They just came up with this concept of church. No, Jesus himself instituted and established the church. And this is the context in which God intends for his people to live out their faith together and to advance his mission. So he refers to them as the church of God in Corinth. And then notice, not only that, he says in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, notice how else he identifies them. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. That word sanctified there and saint, so he said those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and then you get called to be saints together. So that word sanctified and that word saint is essentially the same word. It means holy or set apart. In fact, our sermon series is entitled, A People Set Apart. You'll see it there on the front of your bulletin. And when we think about this, that as Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, when we think about that this is how he, he, he initially addresses them, it is quite remarkable given the situation that the church in Corinth finds themselves in. Because if you know anything about the church in Corinth, you will know that their chief characteristic, the chief mark of the church in Corinth is not holiness. In fact, the challenge, which I had mentioned earlier, with the, pro- the challenge with the church in Corinth is not that, they are, not that they're too holy or too set apart, but in fact that they mirror too much the culture in which they find themselves. And yet, right out of the gate, Paul addresses them as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart, holy, saints. 
We see any number of their issues in the book of Corinth or the book of Corinthians as we walk through it. We see in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, which we'll be looking at in just a few weeks, that this was a church marked by division. So there were factions within the church. In verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Not only that, but in this church, in the church in Corinth, there was open sexual immorality that was not being addressed. There was a man in the congregation who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. In chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul addresses this. He says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Not only was there division and sexual immorality openly taking place in the context of the church, but they were also going to, going to court uh, against one another. Uh, they were filing lawsuits against one another. In secular courts, the divisions ran so deep in the congregation. So in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul writes to them and he says, But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Not only that, but even as we have the opportunity this morning to take the Lord's Supper together, we read in the book of 1 Corinthians that in the church in Corinth, when they came to the Lord's Supper, they were fighting over who got the most to eat, and some were getting drunk taking the Lord's Supper. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul writes, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And then finally, the Apostle Paul speaks to them about their spiritual apathy as well. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34, he says to the church in Corinth, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So all these things are taking place in the church in Corinth. They're marked by division. They're marked by lawsuits. They're marked by sexual immorality. They're marked by dishonoring the Lord's table. They're marked by spiritual apathy and lethargy. And the first thing the Apostle Paul says to them is you are sanctified and holy in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? How could this be? How could this be? And listen, this is so important to get. As Paul opens up and says you are sanctified in Christ Jesus, Paul is not calling them to achieve something. He's not calling them to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. He's telling them, you are already sanctified and made holy in Christ Jesus. We know this because actually the word here, sanctified, is a participle in the original language. You might have come this morning and thought, I don't, I don't really care for an English lesson, but you're going to get a quick one really quick, okay? Because this is important. It helps us understand the passage. This participle here actually is in the past tense. That means it happened before. It happened, it's not happening now. It's not something that he's looking to happen in the future, but it's something that has already happened. And it's in the passive voice. That means it's not something that the Corinthians are doing for themselves. They're not sanctifying themselves, but it's something that has been done for them and to them on their behalf. 
So the idea here is that God has sanctified you. He has made you holy in Christ Jesus, and it's already been done. It's already a completed and finished work. When he says that they are called to be saints, this again is not something they are to achieve, but something that has been granted to them by the will of God. In fact, there's a parallel with verse 1 where Paul says that he is called to be an apostle. That's not something he's to achieve or something he's going after. It's something that God has placed upon his life already. The same is true for them as saints. And how could this be? Actually, the answer to that question, if you go a little bit further down in the chapter, is found in chapter 1, verse 30. You see there the Apostle Paul goes on to write about this concept of being sanctified in Christ, and in chapter 1, verse 30, he writes, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness, here it is, and sanctification and redemption. In other words, Corinthians, you are not the cause of your sanctification, Jesus is. And true for us as well, Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. We are not the cause for our sanctification. Jesus is. That is, the Christian status is the status of one who is a saint, one who is sanctified, one who is set apart, one who is holy unto God, not because of their remarkable holiness, not because of their works or good deeds, but rather because of what God has done for them by His grace in Christ. So that when one places their faith in Jesus, they are washed, they are cleansed by the blood of Jesus of all their sins. They are forgiven and made clean and holy and set apart. And when God looks upon the one who has placed faith in Jesus, He sees the righteousness of His own Son and declares them holy, sanctified, righteous. You see, my friends, in the New Testament, a saint is not someone who has this special elevated status as a Christian because they've lived such a remarkable and sacrificial life. Rather, all who are in Jesus, according to the New Testament, are saints. John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, stated it this way, no man is a believer who is not a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is not a believer. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. If you're a saint in the real biblical sense of the word, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's why you're a saint. And this should change the way we think about sainthood. Uh, let me ask you this question. Would you rather be identified as a saint by some highfalutin ecclesiastical body that looked over your life and did some evaluation of your life and said, yeah, he did this and he did that and she did this and she did that, and so we're going to, we're going to grace you with the status of saint? Or would you rather be identified as a saint by the resurrected, glorious, and risen Christ. Jesus Christ declares men and women to be saints. And my friends, I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ makes men and women saints not based upon their good works or good deeds, but based upon His free grace and mercy. And if these scoundrels in Corinth could be saints, you and I can be too. Not because of what we do or because what we accomplish, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. Now, I know that there are some of you here this morning, and maybe some of you who 
know your Bibles fairly well, and you're saying, but wait a second. I, I know Paul's saying they're saints. They're already sanctified past tense. But I also know in the Bible, in the New Testament, if you're listening well, you've probably already gone here. I know in the Bible it tells us to be holy. It tells us to be sanctified. That we're to become more and more like Christ. That we're to become more and more holy. So which is it? Are they sanctified or are they to be sanctified? Is it something that happened in the past tense or is it something that's supposed to be happening in our lives presently now? And the answer is yes. It's both. Right? Paul will go on to tell them to be holy. Paul will go on to tell them to be sanctified. Paul will go on to tell them to become more and more like Jesus. But that's not where Paul starts. And that's critical. Paul starts with who they already are in Christ. You see, the idea is that Paul is telling them, you need to become who you already are. You are already holy in Christ, positionally, in terms of your identity, and nothing will change that. When God sees you, He sees you holy in Christ because of what Christ accomplished for you at the cross. But now, knowing who you are, become more and more who you are in Christ in terms of your own practical living and experience on a daily basis. Maybe an illustration will help at this point. I remember when I was a young man, and by God's grace, I grew up in a Christian home. And uh, as many of y'all know, my grandfather actually was the pastor of this church here, Crawford Avenue, for 20 years and faithfully served in ministry for many years. He was a godly man and was extremely influenced by his life. I was privileged to grow up in a Christian home. My father and mother knew the Lord, and they taught me and instilled in me the importance of knowing Christ and living for Him. My home wasn't perfect by any means, but I'm thankful that it was a home that was marked by a love for Christ and the Word. And as I was a young man in high school, I began to get involved in a group of friends that I really shouldn't have been involved with. And I remember going to some different parties, and there was one party in particular that I went to, and there were things happening at this party that, as you could imagine, shouldn't have been happening. And uh, Brian Burrell brought a great message for us last week. I wasn't at this party trying to be a friend to sinners to lead them to Jesus. I was at this party for other reasons. And uh, I was participating in some of the things that were taking place that I shouldn't have been participating in. And I remember this party was much bigger than I had anticipated it being. There were folks who were coming that uh, I had grown up with um, and hadn't seen in years. There were folks that maybe I'd gone to church with in years previous that I hadn't seen in some time. Uh, folks coming into the party who had gone to other schools that I'd gone to school with in the past. And as these folks came in, you know, I would, I would see them and I would talk to them and we'd catch up a little bit or whatever it might be. And they didn't have to say anything. I could just see the expression on their face that they were surprised I was there. Because they knew my family. They knew kind of the background. They knew involvement in church. And I remember just having, as that night went on, just more and more of kind of a sinking feeling in my stomach. I got home that night and kind of slipped, slipped in kind of late, laid in my bed that night. And I was just riddled with conviction. Really, I hardly slept the entire night. And one of the things that just kept going through my mind that night was, you weren't raised like this. This is not who you are. You know better than this. And I was just struck by the shame that I brought upon myself and perhaps even my own family. And you see, in that moment, I was still a son. I was still the son of a godly grandfather and godly parents. My identity, my position had not changed. 
But I wasn't acting consistently with who I was, with my identity, with my position. And you know, some of you this morning, you haven't had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. You haven't had the privilege of growing up with godly parents or those who love the Lord. The Corinthians were surely in that position. The Corinthians had a pagan background, right? They didn't have Christian parents. They didn't have people in their lives who were teaching them to follow Christ. They came from a pagan background that was just filled with debauchery and immorality. But all the more important it was for them to understand their new position and new identity in Christ. Because you see, my friends, the more we understand our position and our identity in Christ, who we truly are, the more we will act consistently with who we are. And so that's why it's so vital that these Corinthians know right out of the gate, not necessarily what they need to do, but they need to know who they are. And in knowing who they are, their lives and their behavior will increasingly change and become all that God intended them to be. As we start this series, what a great way to start. As the words that the Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Corinth here can be applied to us at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, you are the church of God. Do you know who you are? Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Set apart. Made holy. Saints. Washed. Cleansed. Redeemed. And the more we get that, the more we will increasingly become all that Jesus intends for us to be. The third point of our greeting here is actually the greeting itself. So we've seen the author of the letter, the recipients of the letter. We won't spend nearly as much time on this, the greeting. Look there in verse 3. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing that's interesting here is that these greetings in Greco-Roman letters were very common. And uh, this, oftentimes in a letter like this, the Greek greeting that would have uh, started the letter would have been kairin, which means rejoice. And in a salutation, it would be translated greetings. And Paul puts his own unique twist on it here. Instead of saying kairin, he writes charis, which you can hear it there is very similar. And charis is the word grace. One commentator states, quote, it is no mere introductory cliche, it is the gospel in one word. You see how Paul just makes a, a subtle change, but a significant change. Because this one word, grace, is at the heart of the Apostle Paul's gospel. This idea of grace that it's undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor and blessing of God. This is at the heart of Paul's gospel that all the blessings of salvation, all the goodness that comes to us from God comes to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then the second greeting there is peace. It's shalom in Hebrew. It would have been the common Jewish greeting. In the Greek, it is arene. And you see the relationship between the two if you think about it. Grace is the source. And then peace is the consequence or the result. So due to the grace of God, the undeserved merited and favor that God has shown us in Christ, the result is we experience peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. By the grace of God that He has shown us in Christ through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection, our sins are forgiven so that we have peace with God. And we are united to one another in one church and have peace with one another. 
And you notice that this is a prayer and a blessing that Paul extends to the church. Grace and peace be to you. That's the sense here. Be to you. He's praying this upon him. It's a blessing. But notice that Paul understands he's not finally the source of this grace. He's not finally the source of this peace. Who's the source of this blessing? Who's the source of this grace and this peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? And so you can, you can kind of trace the way Paul's thinking here. This is God's disposition towards His church. His disposition towards His church is grace. His disposition towards His church is peace. He has peace with His church because of what He's accomplished through the redemptive work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And because this is God's disposition towards His church, I will pray this for the church. God, shower Your grace. Shower Your peace upon Your people. And we have the tremendous privilege and blessing as the people of God to receive this blessing. To receive the grace, the peace, the mercy of God showered upon us as we look to Christ in faith. My friends, I'm excited about us studying this letter together in 1 Corinthians. Even as we open up with just these few first verses, we learn that this letter will come to us with apostolic authority. And so what we're doing here in the weeks and in the months to come is no just mere academic exercise. We are hearing the the Word of Christ with apostolic authority. And we are the people of God by God's grace, sanctified, called to be holy. And as we understand that more and more, we will become all that God would have us to be in Christ. And as we walk through this letter, we can trust that God's grace and peace will be with us. That He will help us each step along the way, giving us all that we need. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. And Lord, as sinners who are so undeserving of Your mercy and grace, we thank You, Lord, for the truth that You have proclaimed over us as Your church that we are Your people, sanctified, holy, and set apart. Father, help us to increasingly become all that You would have us to be in Jesus. We pray that we would be a people set apart, distinct, unique, because of the grace that You have shown us in in our lives. Father, as we come to the Lord's table now, I do pray For anyone this morning who has never experienced that grace and that peace through Christ, I pray that even this morning it would be the first time that they would repent of their sins and that they would know Your grace through Jesus Christ, that they would trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for their salvation, and that they would be changed forever. Father, help us as Your church as we come to the Lord's table now to be reminded of all that You have done for us in Jesus. Lord, may our hearts be broken over our own sins, and may our hearts rise with rejoicing and praise as we consider the hope we have in the gospel. Lord, be pleased now in this time of reflection and remembrance. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.